Cast. We are more diverse than ever. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Jen Gupta, Roy Smith and Tim O'Brien. The Jotcast. June Extra Edition. So in the Jotcast studio with me today we've got Roy and Megan all the way from Australia and the Netherlands. Welcome back guys. Hello listeners. Thank you, hello. Coming up in the show this month, we have Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien. We have your feedback. But first, before all of that, we have an interview with Ernst Zinner that Jen and Stuart carried out. Ernst Zinner is a research professor of physics and earth and planetary sciences at Washington University, and he was talking to us about pre-solar grains. Right, joining us now is Professor Ernst Zinner. Thanks for joining us on the Jodcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and experience now, a rainy day. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it in a whole week since I'm in this, this country. Well, it has been quite nice for the last few weeks, and yeah. the rain has just started, unfortunately, as you arrive. Now, you've spent much of your career working on meteorites. Well, it started about 22 years ago, when a group at the University of Chicago managed to isolate tiny dust grains in primitive meteorites, and it was done because these dust grains carry anomalous noble gases, but it turns out that these dust grains are actually little bits of stardust. That means they come from other stars. They're condensates from stellar atmospheres or supernova ejector and made it all the way into the solar system and are preserved in primitive meteorites. Where, what type of meteorites? Is this any type of meteorite that people could perhaps no, find themselves? Yeah, yeah. Well, they are actually... Uh, different types of meteorites. These are called primitive meteorites because they're from small asteroids which did not experience a lot of geological activity. For example, on Earth, the uh, rocks are not very old because you have all this geological activity that modify and destroy rocks, whereas in this small, on these small asteroids, these rocks were still preserved from the very early days of the solar system. And in these meteorites, we find these uh, pre-solar grains specks of da- stardust. Okay, and have you been involved in collecting the meteorite samples yourself, or do you get them from other people? Well, most of the grains we start off are meteorites which uh, uh, were found somewhere else, and especially there's one fall in, in uh, Australia of the Murchison meteorite, and the reason we work a lot on that is because there's a lot of material available, about 200 kilograms of meteorite. Wow, but that's, I that's have, a lot of rock. I have been co- uh, collecting meteorites myself in Antarctica. It turns out this is a great place to find meteorites because you're on top of uh, two miles of ice and you drive around on a snowmobile and every rock you find is a meteorite. <laughs> so every rock? Yeah, sure. You're so, well, you're so far away from any mountains, no natural rocks, uh, very close, any mountains, and so the meteorites fall on the ice and, you know, are preserved quite well because it's cold, nothing. And there's no moisture. Too. Yeah, there's no, no, no liquid water. I mean, yeah, and it's a very dry place, uh, well preserved, and it turns out by far most, in, in terms of numbers, by far most of the meteorites now have been found in Antarctica. And I guess they're easier so to find against the white of the ice yeah, as well. Yeah. Actually, it's not white, it's blue. I mean, you, you do it in areas where there's, there's blue ice, blue ice fields, where uh, the snow is blown away by the wind. And that's the more compact when it, when it looks bluer, I think, more compacted ice. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's compacted ice. Once you've got hold of a meteorite, how do you go about analyzing that and getting well, some information Well, first you have to it? get the grains out. 
And there are two types, actually. There are uh, so-called carbonaceous grains. That means they are carbon compounds and mostly silicon carbide, which is the same as carborundum, which is used for polishing and so on. But it does not exist uh, on Earth naturally and uh, as graphite. And these grains uh, turn out once you find them in oil, can extract them from the meteorites. All of them come from stars. They all have a stellar origin. And the reason is that you don't form these compounds in the solar system. So they don't form during the entry into this atmosphere either? They... No, 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 no. Oh, that's just so, the outer layer that... Yeah, yeah, it that. just so gets ablated or gets heated or okay. so the meteorite. But uh, the grains themselves do not form in the solar system because the solar system is oxygen-rich and you do not form these carbon-rich compounds. But you also, uh, we also uh, can identify oxygen-rich grains, which are from stars. But then it's much more difficult because you have lot, many, many grains which do not come from stars but are made in the solar system. And in order to distinguish them, you have to measure their isotopic composition. So an isotope, for our listeners who don't know, is when you have an atom with a different number of either protons and neutrons in the nucleus of the atom. So it's yeah. the same, same type of atom, like carbon. And it yeah, like in... carbon, for example, has the same number of protons, six, six protons, that makes it carbon. Okay, but it can have six or seven neutrons. So we have, and you count the total number of nucleons, so you even have 12 or you have 13. So you speak of carbon 12 and carbon 13. Now in the solar system, there's a certain ratio between these two. Okay, so you have a ratio of eight and nine between carbon 12 and carbon 13. What's the reason for the different um, amounts of each? Well, they're made in different nuclear synthetic processes. The carbon-12 is made by combining three helium nuclei. Okay, and this is called the triple alpha because alpha particles are helium nuclei. Triple alpha process make carbon-12. It means to make them where you burn helium because you have to have the helium. On the other hand, carbon-13 is made differently. You have to have the carbon-12 already and then you add a proton so you make it in, in stellar environments which are hydrogen where you burn hydrogen. Okay, so depending in which environment you are, you make either 12 or 13, and then you get uh, grains from different stars, which reflects these different environments. So in the grains, you have uh, large variations in this isotopic ratio. As I said, in, uh, in the solar system, it's a mix from many, many different sources, stellar sources. So this uh, value of 8 and 9 is just some average. But in the grains, we can uh, values which range from 2 to 10,000. So this is a tremendous range. But we can then tell from what kind of stellar environments these grains come from. These are not um, stars now. These are stars before the yeah, solar before, system. Yeah, before the solar system forms. So the solar system itself is four and a half billion years old. And actually, these grains come from dying stars, either from supernovae, which are massive stars that explode, or then uh, intermediate mass stars, which are also at the end of their lifetime and uh, lose a lot of material in, in stellar winds or in uh, as planetary nebula, and stereo forms these grains. So they have to be formed before the solar system formed and then came into the solar system and survived and uh, preserved in these meteorites. Could you explain a little bit about how you actually extract these grains from the meteorites? Okay, for the carbonaceous grains, 
you can separate them by chemical and uh, physical separation. It turns out, for example, silicon graphite is very refractory, also chemically. It's, it's not only a high temperature condensate, so it, it condenses at very high temperature, but it's also uh, chemically very resistant. So what you can do is dissolve everything else in the meteorite. Dissolve all the silicates, dissolve everything else, and if you do it the right way, you are left over with silicon carbide. So then you have a collection of silicon carbide grains. You can even then separate them according to size and analyze them one by one. We have an instrument where we can do that, which is called an iron microprobe. And the chemical processes you use, are you positive that it doesn't have any effect on the actual grain? Well, it does not change the isotopic composition of the grain. It does not exchange, because otherwise you wouldn't have this tremendous isotopic variations in these grains. Okay, It might uh, dissolve some coatings we have on the grain. It might be interesting to, to actually study these coatings, because they might also give you some uh, evidence or some information on the history of these grains, what happened to them since they were born in these stellar outflows, until they came into the solar system. For example, they might have entered some uh, dense molecular clouds and you might have uh, gotten some uh, layer condensed on the grains and it would be nice if this was preserved to get some information, except this chemical treatment removes most of that, but it does not change the grains themselves. Now, when you've analysed different meteorites, is there any way to trace back where they came from, or do you just get a general idea of what the, the solar neighborhood was like before the sun existed? Well, the meteorites, uh, you know, they come from from uh, different asteroids, hmm. and there are different types of meteorites. And as I said, these primitive meteorites are from small asteroids, and they also have there are differences between them, there are different classes, but... Essentially, most of the material which was around in the solar system, also the most of it actually condensed in the solar system itself, is still preserved in these meteorites. Okay, but a fraction of it is pre-solar, is from a stellar origin. So, are you able to paint us a picture of what the pre-solar neighborhood looked like? Well, it's, I think the grains, in principle, they contain some information, of course, uh, about their history. So the idea is that these grains formed in these stellar sources. And actually, we know that some of them come from so-called AGB stars, which are asymptotic giant branch stars, and some come from supernovae. So we know that from the isotopic composition, so we can infer the stellar source. But after they were formed in this, they probably had a long history in interstellar space. Then they come actually from different stars and made it at some point in the molecular cloud from which our solar system collapsed. Okay, and then uh, some of them actually ended up in, in the meteorite. But see, as I said, if they contain some information about this history, so, well, they, they do contain it. They are bombarded by cosmic rays, for example. Hmm. So we recently actually could detect some sign of this cosmic ray irradiation, also in t terms of a, a distinct isotopic pattern, because some of these cosmic rays induce also nuclear reactions and uh, change the isotopic uh, composition of these grains. So we get some information from that about their interstellar history. 
Now, the solar history is complicated because, you know, many of these grains probably where to store it. So in different meteorites, we find different uh, abundances of these grains from which we can conclude that some of these uh, meteorites had a more violent history and more of these grains were destroyed, which go into some type of uh, meteorite, whereas some go into some other type of meteorites and were not destroyed. Do you find that the composition of every meteorite is different? Or are there quite a few No, no, there are different classes of meteorite, okay? So as a primitive meteorite, as I said, they still contain most of the original composition of the material in the solar system, but they were also then exposed to different other processes. Some were heated, and uh, they experienced what is called met metamorphism by heating. So some of the minerals got changed and uh, regrew, for example. Or some of them actually experienced water on the parent body of the meteorite. Okay, and Was then that liquid water, liquid water apparently, and that changed also some of the compositions. For example, silicates. Uh, which are exposed to water to change into different types of silicates. And it's called, they are hydrated. And they form in different types, which are called phyllosilicates, which are hydrated silicates. So they have evidence of water. Now, this process does destroy some of the uh, stellar silicate grains. Okay, so in certain meteorites, we have uh, lower. Uh, abundances of uh, stellar grains, of stellar silicate grains, because of this hydrous alteration. Whereas, for example, silicon carbide is much tougher and does not experience any destruction by this hydrous alteration. I'm quite interested to hear the liquid water on the surfaces of these these asteroids. How does liquid water exist in, in the environment of the asteroid? Well, there's a lot of water which came into the solar system. I mean, you know... Hydrogen is, of course, the most abundant element in the universe, and uh, of course, most of it went to the sun. It didn't stay around. In, in uh, but then, um, uh, oxygen is also fairly abundant, and it combines to water at the right temperature. It already combines it to ice, and then, depending where the asteroids actually were positioned in the solar system, some of that water became liquid and mm. had an influence on the surface of some of these asteroids. That's, it's amazing that you can detect liquid water all this long time ago, the yeah, formation yeah. of the solar system. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah. And some of these meteorites are very dry, so they didn't have much water. It was too cold, and uh, it was not liquid water, and so they did have the chemical reactions to get hydrated. Now, you, you've, as you said, you've spent 20 years investigating the, the properties of these meteorites and the grains on them. Are there any particular things that have really got you really excited during your, your time studying them? Well, yeah, that's sure. <laughs> As I said, these original separation steps were done at the University of Chicago, and we were very lucky that uh, 22 years ago, when they came up with this first separation, we had the instrumentation to be able to measure the isotopic composition of individual grains in this so-called uh, uh, ion probe, ion microprobe instrument. So we actually uh, collaborated right away, and the first uh, discovery was the discovery of uh, pre-solar silicon carbide. Uh, so we, we measured first the carbon isotopic composition. It didn't know in what form uh, it appeared. I mean, we, we, we got very large anomalies in carbon isotopes, mostly excesses of carbon-13 relative to the solar isotopic composition. And then we tried to 
determine what were the carriers. At that time, you know, the silicon carbide was not very purified yet because nobody knew that it was silicon carbide and you could actually get it in very pure form by uh, destroying everything else. We mostly got the isotopic signature from it, but then by a series of other investigations, one was a Raman uh, um, optical microscope, uh, uh, um, Raman spectroscopy, where you can identify uh, minerals, uh, and silicon carbide was identified this way, and then also in the transmission electron microscope, you could look at uh, some of the small grains and identify them as silicon carbides by electron diffraction. So that the fact that it was silicon carbide was a complete surprise, really, to everyone. Well, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, yes, it was expected, but beforehand you, you didn't know, for, for sure, okay? Right. But that was really quite exciting, because I was involved in that from the very beginning, and it was sort of the first triumph. And, and I guess it, since then you've gone on to, and the, the field has gone on to discover many more um, yeah, compounds yeah. within and, the meteorites. And our laboratory in St. Louis has been involved in many of these actual discoveries. So another discovery was pre-solar graphite. And so That's just like we would get in a, in a pencil? Well, it's, yeah, sort yeah. of, yeah, graphite. Yes, these are actually uh, small spherules, it's just a few microns, micrometers in size. And again, you know, was a chemical and physical separation and mostly density separation which produced these graphites and then you actually can analyze them one by one in the iron microprobe and measure the isotopic compositions. And another discovery was then the first oxide grains, pre-solar oxide grains. And these were not silicates but were, were aluminum oxide which is a mineral which is called corundum. But with the oxide grains, it's much more difficult. With the carbonaceous grains, silicon carbonate graphite, you destroy everything else, and when you end up with silicon carbide, and all the silicon carbide is isotopically anomalous. That means it comes from stars. Whereas with oxide grains, it's not the case, because most of the oxide grains are made in the solar system from this mix already, and it has a very uniform isotopic composition. So what you have to do in order to find the stellar grains, you have to measure the isotopic composition, and in this case it's the oxygen isotopic composition of many, many, many grains, okay? And if you're lucky, you then find a few which are anomalous, and then you can make more isotopic measurements in these grains. Yeah. But we have now the instrumentation, we actually got a new instrument, which, well, it's not quite new, we have it for eight years already, which we could use to find... Uh, pre-solar silicate grains, which are even have a lower abundance because most of the silicates are of solar origin. So we have to be able to measure thousands and thousands of grains for the isotopic composition. So when you say you destroy everything else in the meteorite, does that mean you can only get one kind of grain out of each meteorite? Yeah, it's destructive. It's a meteorite. And, but as I said, this Murchison meteorite, fortunately, we have 200 kilograms of it and therefore we can destroy 100 grams at a time in order to make the separates and extracts. And the silicon carbide, for example, in Murchison has an abundance of about 10 parts per million. Okay, so 10 to the minus 5 of the mass of the meteorite is silicon carbide. Is, is that quite a lot compared to other meteorites? Yeah, 
you know, some other meteorites which are more metamorphosed and experienced uh, more alterations and so on, say uh, abundance is actually lower or say, get wiped out already completely. And I was just going to ask you, have you been involved in the Stardust project at all? Yes, we got uh, samples from Stardust. And, you know, the name Stardust uh, was chosen because people thought it meant most of the uh, comet uh, consists of, of Stardust, that means of stellar grains, which turned out not to be true. And it was actually so far fairly difficult to find any true Stardust grains in the Stardust samples. Hmm. And actually, I was not involved in that directly, but a colleague in our laboratory, actually, he uh, found evidence for three oxygen-rich stardust grains in the return stardust samples. What, what advantage does the stardust mission give you over meteorites that you found on the Earth? It doesn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in terms of, it depends what you want to study. I mean, in stardust, you know... As the samples come from a comet, so you can study the composition of the comet and you know what was in the comet, whereas in the meteorites it's different. But in the meteorite you have much more material, of course, to, to play with. And also it has not been damaged as much as the stardust material by the capture uh, of it. Right, because it, it's crashed into a sort of aerogel. Yeah, an aerogel, and, you know, it comes at a fairly high speed, and then it gets mixed with molten aerogel material and so on, so it's much more difficult to extract the original uh, material from that. Right. So it's much more labor-intensive. So it depends what you're after. I mean, you get information about uh, the comet and uh, some in important information, for example, is that it contains some minerals which come from the sort of inner part of the solar system because the comet it was believed to be from a Kuiper belt, so outside of uh, our planets. Okay, and uh, some people thought it had never seen any low, uh, high temperature and so on, and some, some very high temperature phases have been found. So it must be that some material from the inner solar system was actually transported out there where these comets formed. Right, that's... And it was unexpected, yeah. you know. So it depends what you're looking for, you know. If we are really interested in, in, in stellar grains, uh, meteorites are uh, much more a better source to, to get at them. So what does the future hold for the study of pre-solar grains? Well, you know, the question is where, where it all ends. I, I don't know yet. I mean, <laughs> we, so far, we were very successful in finding new types of grains. For example, this is pre-solar silicates. We also discovered in our laboratory uh, four or five years ago Okay, by having these new instruments, which enables us to measure the isotopic composition of of uh, ten thousands of grains, then you find a few anomalous ones. So, but the question, and you know, before that, it turns out the, the total abundance of the silicate grains is fairly high. So, except for the so-called nanodiamonds and it's not quite sure whether all of them are of stellar origin they have the highest abundances in meteorites. But a couple of years before, nobody knew about them. There was no positive evidence uh, about them because it was so difficult to measure them because of the background of all the isotopic and normal grains. Okay, so there was quite a step, and, and now they are sort of on top of the abundance list. So what, what's a nanodiamond? Uh, nanodiamonds are diamonds which were actually 
sort of the first discovered preserved grains uh, because they carry a, a very anomalous type of xenon, which is called HL xenon, which has uh, excesses in the heavy H and the light xenon isotopes. But these diamonds are extremely small, they are only 2 nanometers in size, so one diamond contains only about 2,000 atoms of carbon, and the xenon itself, which uh, you know served as identification that these diamonds have some stellar signature, they are also at a very low abundance, so it turns out only one nanodiamond in a million contains a single xenon atom. Okay, so the question is, you know, are all these nanodiamonds from other stars or only a fraction that carries a xenon? And so it's still an unresolved question, and it's very difficult because they are so small. Hmm. Okay, so we we have some uh, ideas, maybe how to to determine the isotopic composition of individual nanodiamonds. But just then you have to sort of be able to measure the isotopic composition of all 2,000 atoms because, I mean, if you measure only a fraction of them, it's, it's hopeless. Mm. So we have some idea how we can do that, and I just talked with Ian Lyon a few days ago, and here's some ideas how he can do it. So I hope eventually we find... Because the strange thing is that in total, I mean, we cannot measure the isotopic composition of individual nanodiamonds so far. But if you measure the, the average by having billions of them analyzed, okay, the isotopic composition is very close to the isotopic composition of the solar system. Yeah. So if they come from other stars, this is not expected. So the question is, what is the true isotopic composition of carbon of these individual grains? So that's sort of the next challenge. And well, we wish you the best of luck in, in finding out the answers to those questions. It okay. sounds very exciting. Sure. sure, sure. So, you know, we can keep going for some time before we reach the end of what can be done. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Ernst, for that wonderful interview. And now let's chat a bit about Jotcast Live. What's that all about? Well, this was something that was mentioned um, a month or two ago about having a live Jodcast recording at Jodrell Bank Observatory with um, as many listeners as could turn up. We never actually set a date for it, but there has been discussions about... The trouble is trying to get all of the Jodcast team members together in one place, which is not very easy. That's very difficult because, as you know, we are very diverse at the moment. Yes, um, even those of us that are just based in Manchester, it's hard to get everybody in one place at the same time. Yeah, I mean, we were thinking about the summer, but Stuart's away for, I don't know, about, about a month now. I'm going away for about five weeks over the summer. It's been impossible to organise in such a short period of time. So we're looking at September, October or November. Yes, there is currently a poll up for the Jodcast team to put their availabilities down. And when we make a decision, of course, the listeners will be the first to know. So are you guys planning on coming back for this? If I can, most certainly, yes. I think it might be a bit of a long trip from Perth, so I will probably be there virtually, so I think we'll definitely set up Skype and a webcam if, if we can manage it. So one thing we might have at Jodcast Live, possibly, is, of course, a live Ask an Astronomer. Um, this month, not live, but we did have plenty of questions, so Roy went to talk to Tim to ask him all of your questions. With me in the Jodcast studio is our very own Tim O'Brien. Hello, Tim. Hello. So today for Ask an Astronomer, we have some very interesting questions. Uh, one question from John van Houten was asked through Facebook. 
and he's been waiting for an answer for about half a year, I think. Uh, we sort of missed him out. Our apologies for that. Well, it's my fault. I'm just too old to be on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so John van Houten wonders about interferometry, exactly how it works. Uh, but also he read about how they use interferometry these days at optical telescopes, where they bring the beams of light together by mirrors and do the interferometry with the photons themselves. And he wonders if it is possible to rather than bringing the light together, to record the light from two sources, digitize it, and then correlate them in a computer the same way we do with radio waves. And that way you can, might be able to get around the technical problems you have that limits optical telescopes to go to very large baselines. Okay, so I mean, uh, this is definitely not a stupid question. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, it, to be honest, it's a quite a deep and complex question, really, if one wanted to go into it in in uh, in detail but let me just sort of summarize uh the the background to it really um the idea of um the idea of interferometry the reason for doing interferometry is that we want to increase the uh, sharpness of view we get with a given telescope so so for any particular telescope or indeed any sort of optical instrument like your eye for example um the sharpness of the of the image that you can create with it is limited by the size of the the aperture over which you collect the light so in the case of the eye that would just be the diameter of your pupil for a telescope it would be the diameter of the telescope mm -hmm. and in fact the sharpness re is related to the to the to the ratio of the wavelength of light you collecting and the diameter of the aperture so it's just really to do with how many wavelengths of light there are across the aperture so for any given thing you know what you want to do to get sharper and sharper image you would increase the size of your aperture clearly that's limited your eyes have got an obvious limit mm -hmm. um, but even for an individual telescope there's a, there's a, there's a limit you can't build uh, telescopes it's very difficult to build very large telescopes now, in the radio, uh, this was a real problem because, because when we started doing radio astronomy, we were using wavelengths of light which are basically 100,000 times longer than visible light, typically. And that means that to get the same sharpness of view, you'd need a telescope that was 100,000 times larger. So even to get the same sharpness of view as, a, say, a 5-centimeter diameter optical telescope with a lens or something 5 centimeters across, you'd need a 5-kilometer sized radio telescope, and right. it's just not feasible. You know, the biggest one there is is Arecibo, so that's... What, That's three, 300 meters. 300 meters, yes. So what the trick was to take two separate telescopes, separate them by five kilometers or something, and then bring the signals back together and combine them. And that's effectively like, you know, you imagine this five-kilometer-sized telescope where you're only using two bits of the surface. Um, now... Uh, that's fine. And what you've got to imagine, I guess what I like to imagine Merlin, talk about Merlin here in the UK. Merlin's got seven radio telescopes spread across 217 kilometres across the, the heart of England. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine each of those seven telescopes has been seven bits of the surface. And uh, you can imagine radio waves arriving from space and reflecting off those bits of surface. And then they'd sort of come together at a focus. They'd reflect off and they'd come together at a focus. And, and if this was this giant telescope, the focus would be at the top of a tower that you'd have to build in Birmingham or somewhere, which is in the middle of England. And that tower itself would be, you know, hundreds of kilometres high. So, so that's, that's mad. So instead what you do is you collect the signal at each telescope and then we transport it across England back to Jodrell to combine it. Now, in the old days when we started doing interferometry, we would have done these things, um, this, this signal's combined live in some way. And when you point the telescopes in different directions, because you're not actually steering a giant dish around, you're not actually tipping a giant dish, you're just steering individual telescopes, what you end up with is a, is a delay between the, between 
between the individual signals from the individual telescopes. So imagine, you know, you've got here your telescope spread across England and you're looking at an object in the sky towards the north or something, um, at some angle above the horizon towards the north. The, the radio waves from that source arrive first at the telescope that's at the northern part of the array and arrive a little bit later because of light travel times at the telescopes at the southern end of the array. Mm -hmm. And we have to correct for that because if it was a real giant telescope, we'd have tipped it to point in that direction yes. and all these little parts of the dish would all be symmetrically placed and so you, that would automatically be allowed for. And in an interferometer, we don't do that. So in the old days, what we'd have done, what was originally done, was to put what are called delay lines, attach separate bits of cable, effectively lengths of cable that, that corrected for the delay lengths uh -huh. between the individual interferometer arms. Now, in the case of Merlin, we'd need delay lines that were hundreds of kilometres long, so that would be a bad idea. And, of course, you have to reconnect a, a different length delay line every time you point your telescopes in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So what's done instead is to digitise the signal and send uh, later uh, combine those signals back together, correcting for the delay, adding in the delay electronically in the computer. Now, that's done in a thing called a correlator, which is basically a specialised computer that does the digitisation and does the, does the adding in the delays and then combining the signals. Now, the question that John had was, why can't we do a similar thing in optical interferometry? Right. And what... Uh, the good example of an optical interferometer these days is the VLTI, the Very Large Telescope Interferometer over in Chile, uh, which has these, um, we have these 8 metre sized large telescopes and then there's these out outrigger 1.8 metre telescopes that are the sort of elements, different elements of the interferometer. But they're relatively close together, they're within a space of a few hundred metres on the observing platform at, at Paranal. And actually they use the delay line idea. So underneath the ground there, there's actually tunnels amazing things with little little um, uh, almost like little tractor things on wheels that have mirrors on where the light is sent down the tunnel and reflected off the mirror on this little machine and back down the tunnel again and if you move the machine up and down the tunnel you can change the length of the delay line and that's how that's done but that's different from a radio telescope either whether it's digital or analog because in a radio telescope you observe the signal it's transferred into an electric signal and that is being transported, delayed, whatever. Yeah. And as for an optical telescope, you directly delay basically the photons themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is there is a difference. So there's a, there's an electric, but there's, but the but the the, the di what's that's called a direct interferometer when you're directly using the signal that's been uh, that's been produced with the optical with the optical interferometer. In the case of the radio, what we do is we digitize it. We sample the signal at a very high rate. Um, and uh, one of the problems you'd have if you tried to do the same thing in the in the optical is the if you can imagine the frequency of the of at which you'd have to sample the signal is vastly increased over the frequency at which you can sample the signal you have to sample the signal in the radio even in the radio it's only just becoming feasible to directly sample the signal at sort of gigahertz frequencies mm -hmm. uh, typically what we do is we mix the signal down to low frequencies and and digitize it there so in the case of the optical, one of the problems is you can't sample the signal at a sufficiently high rate, and you get involved in problems to do with basically the the uh, particle wave nature of things, where there's only a certain number of photons that you can um, that you've got to play with. And in the case of effectively most optical detectors that you're used to, CCDs and so on, they detect individual photons. They don't detect the wave they don't detect this ver this high frequency variation right. in the signal which is what we what we deal with in, in the radio end of the spectrum 
that's basically the crucial thing. It's almost like optical interferometry now is, in a sense, is similar to the way you could do radio interferometry with delay lines uh, in the past. But, yeah, you're fundamentally limited by um, both the variation, the, 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 the frequency at which you have to uh, sample the signal and the fact that you've got a limited number of photons to play with. Yeah, so you can't digitize the wave aspect of a photon that's yeah, based for, that's, for an optical telescope. Yeah, technically it's not possible with an optical telescope. Yeah. Right. So we have another question from Andrea Ashworth uh, about gravitational waves. Is it possible that we would ever feel stronger effects from a gravitational wave? This means if there was a large event in the universe close to us. I understand they're hard to detect, but if something happens nearby, would it be easier to detect and would we also notice the physical effects ourselves? So gravitational waves are these things um, predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity. Um, so effectively you get sort of ripples in space-time. Uh, and in Einstein's interpretation of gravity, it's the geometry of space-time that gives rise to the effect that we perceive as gravity. Yeah, we, so, now, we now believe they actually exist, right? We do, yeah. I mean, the you know, we've never detected them directly yet, mm -hmm. probably coming in the next few years. We'll get on to that in a minute. But... Um, uh, yeah, we think they exist largely because of observations of pulsars, as you as you well know, yes. um, and uh, basically because we see the um, decay in the orbit of uh, so-called binary neutron stars, uh, two neutron stars orbiting one another, uh, as they radiate away energy via gravitational waves, and the, and the decay in the orbit that you get is exactly what was predicted by Einstein's theory. So we're, you know, as sure as we can be that gravitational waves do exist, but it'd be nice to detect one. And the problem is the effect. The size of the effect is tiny. What If a gravitational wave were to pass, well, there are gravitational waves passing through us now, we, we think, <laughs> um, but what we would be feeling is that we'd be sort of being squashed and stretched as this wave went through us. Now, the trouble with that is the magnitude of the effect is tiny. Um, for, the, for the sorts of sources that we think would give the largest possible um, signals, we're talking about a fractional stretching or squashing of order 10 to the minus 20. So if you were if you were if something was one meter in size, yes. it, it would reduce in size by ten ten to the twentieth of that right. of that amount. So it's a tiny change; it's a fractional change in the size of something. Um, as I said, ten to the minus two is a one percent change. You know, ten to the minus three, a tenth of one percent. Ten to the minus twenty is a tiny, tiny change. Obviously, yeah, if things are closer by, you'll get a stronger signal, but, you know, we're not, there, are, there is nothing that we can think of that's close enough to give us a signal that would be in any way perceivable towards directly. We have to build very sensitive systems. The best sorts of systems that are, are coming online now, things like LIGO, aims for something like a, a detection limit of something like 10 to the minus 22 which is smaller than the 10 to the minus 20, so it should, LIGO should be able to detect some of the stronger sources of gravitational waves, and that's why you can say that, you know, we'd hope that in maybe the next few years there'll be a report of, of, of the first detect, direct detection of a gravitational wave. But there's no chance of, of noticing any physical effects ourselves from a gravitational wave? No, no, we, it's just, just too tiny, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe that's Or maybe I'm pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and finally... Paul Duffield sent us an email that around 10 p.m. last night I sat out in the garden and I looked out into the sky there was a big bright orange ball like there was something on fire. So I rushed in to get my binoculars and looked at the object. It looked at about 32,000 feet, probably more. The object was on fire and it was a dark triangular shape. Was anything reported your end? 
Yeah, we do. We do. You know, people often write into us with these sorts of reports. I mean, there's a there was a couple of things. I did reply to Paul actually by email just to give him some feedback on this directly. But just just as a, a general point, I mean, he mentions seeing a bright, big, bright orange ball like there was something in fire. He looked at it on his binoculars, and uh, he says it was on was on fire uh, now you know my standard I, start, I think I started banging on about this a while ago now um, that, uh, and I've, in fact there was a recent report here in the UK that somebody else picking up on the same idea I think actually that the vast majority of UFO reports we're getting these days are from these so called Chinese lanterns right, yeah. which are these, these balloons yeah they're like paper balloons and you light a candle underneath them and it's like a little hot air balloon yeah, and so it rises up yeah. So, so they do look like they're on fire, mm-hmm. um, and they're amazing. You know, they are interesting. We've not seen them before. It's a bit surprising. It's no surprise people say there's a UFO. But I suspect if we were living in Southeast Asia or something, there wouldn't be all these UFO reports because they're used to seeing these yes. things. Sometimes I know they launch many at the same time, so you see many of these lights floating through the air. Yeah, yeah. Often mm-hmm. following on from one another because they're all rising from the same back garden somewhere, yeah. and you know they sort of drift up, and then they gradually they, the wind takes them, and then they burn out and they disappear. And, it sounds very much like that's one of those because of the the fire issue. I mean, it could have been a real large hot air balloon, but typically they don't fly them at night. No. Um, there is some, just one other point about this is, um, you know, one of the things I was saying to him, it didn't sound like it was moving fast. So it wasn't like a fireball, probably. If it's moving slowly, it's much more likely to be a fireball being a, a meteorite that's burning up in the atmosphere, a particularly large chunk. Mm-hmm. One of the things he does mention is he says it looked as though it was about 32,000 feet, probably more. And, you know, my point there would be, actually, it's almost impossible to tell how far away something is. Right. Because you've got nothing to, how can you gauge? You don't know how big it is. Yes. How do you know how far away it is? And, you know, it may feel to you like that's what it's like because if you're comparing it to other things you've seen. But in practice, you know, it could be a lot closer than you think or it could be a lot farther away than you think and very hard to be sure. But I would say... You know, I'd be 99% sure it was a Chinese lantern. Yes. I think that's a very clear answer. Thank you very much. Okay. And that's it for this month's Ask an Astronomer. And I hope we'll be back next month. I hope so, yes. We'll see you then. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Tim. And now on to your listener feedback. And first up, we have a postcard from Jason Hill from the Channel Islands. Sent us a very colourful postcard from the island of Sark. So thanks for that, Jason. We've got quite a wall of postcards up here in the Jogcast studio now, so do keep sending them in. Yeah, I wonder what the furthest one is. I'm not sure. But it's nice to have something to brighten up the, the rather grey Jogcast studio. We've got one with a penguin on I imagine that's from quite far away. Uh, we have emails from Gillian Parrish and Adrian West. And Adrian tells us about the Newbury Astronomical Society who hosted a Twitter moonwatch on a Saturday night. Uh, I think that was the 30th of May. And the idea is to have all the members of the Astronomical Society um, observing the moon or any other nice astronomical objects that we could see that night and Twitter the images. And people are quite keen on receiving those images and the whole discussion came out as to questions on what the images were about or other astronomical questions. And all night they just went on and Twittered about it. So there was quite an active discussion going on on Twitter during the event, by the sounds of it, with quite a lot of people yeah, asking questions about the images that were appearing. So it was a very good piece of public outreach by New Astronomical Society. And we have some of the images there on the website, and we'll put a link on the show notes to that website. So speaking of Twitter, we have much, much activity on the Jotcast Twitter as well. So do join in the discussion, send your tweets around the world. 
So in the last edition, we were talking about a list of abbreviations, acronyms and definitions that's been set up on the forum. And we've had a lot of additions to that since the last episode. I think we've even reached the text limit on the forum for one post. So if you have any questions about anything that we say in the Jogcast that you don't understand, head on over there and we'll try and answer your questions. So keep sending your feedback. You can do it by going to forum.jodcast.net. Or if you're on Twitter, you can join us at twitter.com slash jodcast. You can find us on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And we're on YouTube, youtube.com slash jodcast. Okay, and that's all we have for this month. And in July, um, as most of the team are actually going to be away, we will probably only have one episode, unfortunately. Um, But we will be back in August with two episodes. So until then, goodbye. Jod on, people. Bye, guys.